2: Onward we roll, nine minutes past 10 o'clock into hour number two on this Wednesday morning, the 26th morning of the ninth month of the year of our Lord, 2018. Thanks again to Kevin Jackson from the net. Uh, great commentary, great analysis of Kavanaugh, the Cosby situation, and uh, uh, obviously his movie Bleeding Blue as well. Thanks also to Jack Schron for the local issue of Cuyahoga County uh, uh, greenlighting last night by an 8-to-3 vote that turned out to be on party lines, not to suggest that the Republicans uh, got together in a block. But uh, they were obviously uh, outnumbered 8-to-3, creating this ridiculous commission on uh, diversity uh, in Cuyahoga County. So we'll talk more about that as we go. But I do want to shift gears now to a more national security conversation as we welcome our friend Ryan Morrow to the program. Ryan, of course, is the chairman of the Clarion Intelligence Network, Shillman Fellow at the Clarion Project, clarionproject.org. Ryan, good to have you back, sir. How are you?
3: Hey, I'm doing well. It's great to talk with you.
2: Ryan, uh, I want to talk about yesterday, and I want to talk about the president's speech to the United Nations, particularly as it pertains to Iran. And here's just a report for those who don't know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, this is from Fox News. Iran's president saying the United States is attempting to overthrow his government. Hassan Rouhani taking his turn at the UN podium shortly after President Trump, and saying no country can be brought to the negotiating table by force. که خواستار He also said that President Trump's decisions to pull back from global institutions suggest an inability to understand a complex and interconnected world. For her part, United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley Ryan said this.
4: Honestly, Iran is the biggest issue that we have right now. I think you can look. We are having multiple attacks from their proxies on our embassy in Iraq. They are very involved, whether it's Lebanon or Yemen. They are constantly in the middle of trouble. and they're not on our side. So Ryan Mora is a
2: national security analyst with an expertise in the Middle East. What was your takeaway yesterday from the president's speech and then Nikki Haley's follow-up to that this morning?
3: I had a lot of different thoughts. Uh, there were some positive points, and there weren't really any negative points um, that, that I could tell. Uh, but there were things that I wish he had done that uh, he, he didn't. But I would say on the, on the in, from a historical perspective, what he was talking about when he was rejecting, uh, globalism as an ideology and talking about America first and all, all what that means, there were arguments he should have made, uh, that weren't in there, but it, nonetheless, that is a historical speech. Um, and I'm not sure that that's really dawning on people because of the, the clickbait headlines that you're getting. That's all about, um, people laughing at them. Right, uh, Trump saying America first, and that's just because it's a controversial term, um, and Iran stuff, um, and the Iran stuff, there isn't really anything new. So I was disappointed by that, aside from, and I like that you're saying, look, sanctions are going to kick in November 5th, but at a moment of weakness for the Iranian regime, I would have preferred if Trump really used the world stage to say, look, this regime just might be done. If you're doing business with them, that's a stupid move. And really tout our success, because it's like every other day, a business is canceling a contract um, or is leaving Iran if they're already active there. And uh, it would be great for people around the world to understand exactly what these sanctions are going to do if they are forcefully implemented, because uh, the regime could be done starting November 5th.
2: So um essentially the Iranian president was accurate when he said uh the president you know the president of the United States is threatening to to destroy uh, our regime to destroy our, our our country's leadership.
3: I think in Trump's mind uh this is the way you get the best deal possible. Uh, you make it so that the regime has to choose, essentially, survival or give in to our demands. Uh, because he's been very consistent in that he does not believe in promoting democracy in any way, um, that he does not want to overthrow even the Iranian regime. You have State Department officials explicitly rejecting that as a policy and even criticizing the notion of it. But then Trump has people around him who want to overthrow the Iranian regime. So there is a split within the administration, um, but the fact of the matter is is that the train has kind of left the station in terms of the survival of the Iranian regime, so Trump may think that the sanctions are the best way to get a deal, and maybe it is, uh, but once that train has left the station uh, and you see Iranian people protesting in the streets and there's no money coming in, uh, at that point the, the regime just might collapse and, and he better anticipate it.
2: How concerned should we be, Ryan Morrow, national security analyst, um, uh, of the the wounded dog theory? Uh, The fact that if they are on the verge of collapse, if they are on the verge of losing everything due to the Iranian revolution and the people rebelling and the sanctions crippling them and there's no money coming in, that they do something desperate?
3: Well, we've heard that throughout the entire history of the Iranian regime. And under the Obama administration, there were tough sanctions. There was a need to get the price of oil much higher than it was in order to to handle the budget for Iran. And then they came up with the Iran deal. And that's what saved the regime and prevented that from happening. Um, But there was a period there where the wounded dog theory should have been enacted um, and maybe the regime was trying to sponsor a few terrorist attacks here and there, but it didn't happen. And so consistently I see that it doesn't really happen, or they try something and it gets foiled. And if they're on the way out, uh, I'm sure the regime will try something. But that's all the more reason to just finish this. Uh, there, there's going to be that temptation to take a really good deal from the regime if they think that they're uh, on their last days. Uh, they, will, they might even give in to all of our demands. And so over the next year, it's possible that we get to this really awkward position where we either save the regime uh, because they meet all of Trump's demands or they promise to, and people say, we will never get another deal like this. This is actually a, a good one in theory. Or we stand by the Iranian people and say, all right, things may be tougher, may be riskier, but for the sake of our grandchildren, let's get this done with.
2: Ryan Morrow joining us. Ryan is the National Security Analyst and the Shulman Fellow at the Clarion Project. He's also the chairman of uh, the Clarion Intelligence Network. Ryan, I want to ask about John Kerry and his meddling in this uh, situation, as he is no longer obviously a member of the official government. He is not uh, part of the Trump administration. He's a part of the now uh, retired or resigned or or term-limited Obama administration, and yet he went behind the Trump administration's backs and had conversations with the Iranians. This is Nikki Haley addressing that part of this also this morning.
4: Kerry did was not only disrespectful it was hurtful to america when we are sitting there trying to get iran to to come to the table in a way that they understand the ballistic missile testing has to stop the support of terrorism has to stop they have to quit selling arms to the houthis when all those things to have another american go in and say don't worry about it that absolutely is anti-american how do you analyze that Ryan? <laughs>
3: I wasn't aware she said it was an anti-American action. I'm really happy to hear it because the strongest language possible, I think, is appropriate for this situation. Um, I'm personally not comfortable, as some other people are, in saying treasonous because for various reasons. But I'm kind of close to it, um, and because what John Kerry has essentially said was uh, because I disagree with a policy, I'm going to help the enemies of the United States defeat that policy, uh, and. I just can't believe it's happening. Now think of the media circuits over the fact that Trump administration officials were allegedly talking to the Russians while the Obama administration was in power after the election, when they knew that they were about to come in. So it's part of preparation for a transition, a kind of an understandable thing depending on what they were talking about. And there's a whole media circuit about that from the left and everywhere. And then you have John Kerry, Going and undermining the United States, not expressing his opinion in an appropriate political context within the U.S., but instead actually assisting the thwarting of that policy by collaborating with foreign entities, including ones that are anti American. And you get basically silence, at least on the left-wing side, the right's obviously covering it um, quite well. And it's just astonishing. And by the way, this isn't the only time he's done that. He did that also with the Palestinians. I remember when he told the Palestinians, hang tough against Israel and against Trump because... You know, I might run for president in 2020, which shows that he is really detached from reality.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. And I, you know, I, I appreciate your point about calling it anti-American but not treasonous, um, the only thing I think that could stop me from saying it's treason is by, by my way of understanding and my um, uh, reading of of, of the uh, of the words, uh, you know, that, that we're not actually at war with Iran right now. They are considered to be an anti-American entity, but we're not at war with them. So, giving aid and comfort to the enemy—I don't know if that necessarily rises to this because are they the enemy if we're not officially in a declared war with them? Short of that, I right. think it is treasonous because it is undermining, as you said, the official government, the official position of the United States, and collaborating with collaborating with our enemies to help them defeat that policy. I mean, if they, if we were at some kind of a war or even a you know some sort of declared state of aggression with Iran, I would think this is treason, Ryan.
3: Yeah, I think there's a difference between treasonous actions from a moral perspective and making a moral judgment, in which case I think you'd be right. From a legal perspective, you're supposed to be at war, and then also you'd have to show, you'd have to believe at least that John Kerry's loyalty is with the enemy rather than the United States. I think in his mind, he rationalizes this by, or maybe brainwashes himself into saying, well, this is ultimately what's best for the United States, so the ends justify the means, in which case that wouldn't be treason, it would be stupidity, and, and a bunch of other things. Um, but at, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And what just I just thought of is, this just shows that we're dealing with the same John Kerry from the Vietnam War. But there hasn't been much growth. Even though he apologized for when he testified to Congress and said that he witnessed American troops basically massacring and raping civilians over there, and then he later right. admitted that, oh, he didn't actually have proof of that, and he apologized years later, and, you know, oh, I'm different now. No, you're not. No, you're not. You just regret that action because it happened and it didn't work out for you. That doesn't mean you actually grew as a
2: person. That's a great point. That is a great reminder because he does. He seems to see the United States as being the aggressor, being the you know the, the being in the wrong, not necessarily being on the right side of this. He took up for the Vietnamese, the North, North Vietnamese, and now he's doing the same thing for Iran. I mean, it's not quite the same, obviously, as we're talking about allegations of, of of slaughter, but it's the the mindset is the same. The United States bad. Whoever our adversary is, whether they're a declared enemy or not, good. That's that's very much what uh, you know. It's very consistent from him so uh great analysis ryan let me get a quick time out here i want to come back and ask you about what the ufc the ultimate fighting championships the mma mixed martial arts circuit has to do with islamic extremism i'll let you tell that story next right here on am 1420 the answer All right, 1026, we've got about four minutes for uh, Ryan Moore of The Clarion Project to tell us this story. Um, Ryan, the UFC, uh, Ultimate Fighting Championship's biggest star, arguably, is Conor McGregor. And Conor McGregor has maybe the fight of his lifetime coming up. And somehow, some way, Islamic extremism has been brought into this equation. Can you tell the tale?
3: <laughs> yeah, you never thought that we'd be talking about UFC in one of our segments, but no. uh, th- there are some overlaps here that's really interesting. Um, The first, there's really two. First, is that there's a bit of a scandal in the UFC about some of the top fighters under the top manager being tied to the dictator of Chechnya, who is an Islamic extremist and pro-Putin somehow, um, and basically a jihadist. Um, And he uses them for propaganda. And so that's one scandal. Uh, But it intersects with this other issue. Now uh, next Saturday, Conor McGregor is going to be fighting uh, someone from Dagestan named Khabib. It's a big fight; everyone's talking about it. And Khabib is managed by a man named Ali Abdel Aziz, and I know of him because he was a member of the FUKRA group with the terrorist compounds across the United States, like Islamburg that I've talked about on your show. Sure, a real radical Islamic group with Pakistani leadership and terror ties. And he was a member of the group, got arrested, and then became an NYPD and FBI informant inside the group. And then they cut him loose because he was lying to them about stuff. Um, He is now the biggest manager of fighters in the UFC. And so at the press conference, Conor McGregor turns to his opponent's manager, who is this guy, and calls him a terrorist snitch and a mad terrorist. And so everyone is saying, wait, what's he referring to? And now you have the UFC world learning <laughs> about Javad al-Fukra.
2: Wow. That is huge because when Connor McGregor speaks, people listen. I mean, he's, he's a showman. I mean, we should be clear. Connor McGregor, when I say he's the biggest star, not only is he one of the best fighters, he's Muhammad Ali, uh, but 2018 version, uh, self promoting, say anything outrageous just to get attention. And it works. You know, Muhammad Ali did that to sell tickets to his fights. That's how he got big purses. Uh, and, and it worked, obviously. Connor McGregor is good at this too. So now he's using this say anything, uh you know persona of his just to get attention uh, and he's using it people are paying attention now now are more people perhaps um, you know whether they're fight fans or not is irrelevant but more people are becoming aware of uh, of Fukra
3: yeah and so he's doing this as part of his you know part of his shtick but he's using facts He's actually calling out the, the biggest manager in UFC and his opponent, uh, for the ties to Islamic extremists in Chechnya and Dagestan and, uh, then also this connection to the Fukhra group. And when he said it, you could tell it wasn't, you can tell when Connor really doesn't like someone and also when he's like acting. Uh, but the way he ended, the press conference about to end and he just turns and starts shouting the manager's name and starts saying these things. Uh, huh. you could tell he was like, I want to call out that guy for his jihadist connections. and so. Do you, do you think sorry, he's Google, serious, the, Ryan? The
2: yeah. Ryan, do you think he's serious? Or is this more of like um, back in the 1980s, WWE style, Hulk Hogan, the all-American guy, would, would call out and, in, in, of course, feud with the Iranian, uh, uh, the Iron Sheik. The He would wave the Iranian flag around, and uh, uh, Nikolai Volkov was the, the Russian, and they were a tag team, and they were, of course, our biggest enemies at the time. and And he would, you know, call them out for their their country's misdeeds it it, it was part of the show do you think that mcgregor is putting on a show or do you think he really wanted people you know he really felt that way and wanted to call them out for their terrorist support
3: I think he's being honest. I mean, there
2: there is a a
3: motivation for a show, but I think it's for real because his demeanor was a bit different from what I could tell, but also he mentioned some other details that showed he did a deep dive on this manager. He put serious time into studying him, and the way the press was about to end, he could have just focused on his opponent, but he was like, nope, I'm throwing the manager in, Um, and the consequences for this, Connor's being called an Islamophobe. He's doing major putting a spotlight on the manager in a very negative way. That's not the type of normal acting between opponents that you get. This is I'm trying to destroy you as a person.
2: Wow, I I love it. I'm going to follow it a lot more closely. I mean, I was already wanting to watch that fight just because I do enjoy uh, UFC, (laughs) but now I want to see it even more, and I want to I want to see Conor McGregor take care of business. Uh, Ryan Morrow, uh, Clarion Project, or excuse, yeah, ClarionProject.org. Make sure you follow him online at Ryan Morrow M A U R O. Ryan, thank you so much. All right, thank you. You got to have a great day. Let's get to news now at 10:30. Come back. Your phone calls the rest of the way. We are guest free until 11 o'clock on AM 1420, The Answer.
0: There are two sides to every story. There's the mainstream media side, and then there's the truth. You are experiencing the truth. The Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer.
2: Indeed, now 1035 on AM 1420, The Answer. Got 25 minutes of outstanding awesome left for you before we turn it over to Mike Gallagher, then Prager Medved, Seculo Elder, and a few wish, Joe Walsh, overnight. Um, really, really great conversations today with Ryan Morrill, Kevin Jackson, and uh, with um, uh, with uh, Jack Stron, Cuyahoga County Council, about yesterday's shameful, shameful vote in the Cuyahoga County Council uh, to pass an ordinance to create a three-member panel to essentially destroy businesses, all businesses in Cuyahoga County, in the name of LBGTQXYZ uh, protections. An absolute travesty. No religious uh, exemptions, no um, uh, protections for the, uh, the employees when they are simply trying to make sure that people are safe in their businesses. Nothing. It is just going to destroy Cuyahoga County businesses, but we'll talk more about that. Uh, I want to stay on the Kavanaugh story now or get back to it. This is the first day in the last several that I have not gone almost wall to wall with the Brett Kavanaugh story. Tomorrow we are supposed to have testimony given before the Senate Judiciary Committee, as you know, um, from uh, Christina Blase Ford and also from Brett Kavanaugh. There are all kinds of reports and rumors now that this is not going to happen. Christine Blase Ford very well may not show up. Why? Because her attorneys say that she is going to be treated unfairly. This is again another attempt to delay and drag out this process. They they had she has been screaming or started screaming about two weeks ago. She wants to be heard. The Republicans made every good faith attempt to say, yes, you should be heard. Let's listen to what she has to say. She said well, I'm afraid to testify. I don't want to talk in front of Kavanaugh. I don't want to be questioned by a bunch of uh, uh, Republican men. Uh, I don't want to go to Washington. They said, look, we'll do whatever you want to do. We'll do a phone conversation so you can tell your story. We'll do it in person. We'll do it in D.C. We'll come to California. You can have the, the Republican uh, men question you, or we can have a special uh, a lawyer question you. Uh, we'll do this any way you want. They bent over backwards for her. Finally, after realizing how it looks that she was dodging the committee, dodging being under oath and repeating the lies she is telling to the media, to the um, uh, to the committee, knowing that if she's under oath, she lies to the media, no big deal. You lie to, under oath, you could be prosecuted for perjury. Now they're they're once again saying it's not fair, it's not fair. Chuck Schumer is saying this is not fair. There needs to be an FBI investigation first. Again, dragging things out time and time again. This is what it's all about. Drag it out, drag it out, drag it out. The problem of course being as I said uh in the uh, first hour of the program, you, the the jig is up. The jig is up. Calling for an FBI investigation to do what? FBI investigations don't last jer- thing prove I'll point anything. Out.
4: The next person that refers to an FBI report as being worth anything obviously doesn't understand anything.
2: This is Joe Biden, then Democrat Senator, 1991 in the Clarence Thomas hearings involving Anita Hill slamming the use of FBI reports as being anything, having anything to do with the outcome of one of these hearings.
4: FBI explicitly does not in this or any other case reach a conclusion. Period. Period. So judge, there's no reason why you should know this. The reason why we cannot rely on the FBI report, you wouldn't like it if we did. Because it is inconclusive. They say he said, she said, and they said period so when people wave an FBI report before you understand they do not they do not they do not reach conclusions
1: make recommendations.
4: they do not make as my friend points out more adequate. Adic- they do not make recommendations
2: so why is, it then, why is it then that the left has been clinging to this as their, their fail-safe? FBI investigation, FBI investigation, FBI investigation. The FBI is going to do nothing but listen to he said, she said, and then turn over what he said and she said. Well, guess what? That's exactly what's supposed to happen tomorrow. We're supposed to have he said, she said. Questioned by the Judiciary Committee and by a special attorney that they're bringing in a female to question Judge or not Judge rather, Dr. Christine Blase Ford because she was too intimidated by all of these Republican men who were going to question her. They have given her literally every single thing she has asked for, and now word is she is still not going to show. Why? because they want to continue to delay this process. No other reason. Do not be fooled. This is about delaying, stalling, playing. As Somebody described it as the old North Carolina four-corners offense. When you're trying to run out the clock, please run out the clock and get to November. We've got to find a way to stall this. That's why it was so important for Chuck Grassley, the Senate Judiciary uh, Committee chairman, to do what he did yesterday, to tell them, your time is up we're going to vote on Friday, we're going to have this hearing on Thursday, then we're going to vote on Friday. He did say, however, that if the committee members are not ready, then we can still delay that vote. But I have to, by procedure and proper regular order, I have to announce the intention of a vote three days prior to having it. And so here it is, three days prior, yesterday actually, and he said, we're going to vote on Friday. As long as we hear everything from both sides tomorrow, uh, we're going to have our vote on Friday. And again, oh, that's horrendous. Diane Feinstein calls it an outrageous move. What a terrible idea to actually have this vote. Why? Because they don't care what is said Thursday. It is just a means to an end, which is delaying the ultimate vote. And if the vote happens Friday, Thursday is irrelevant to them. Grassley said very directly, I am not going to silence this accuser. I want her to be heard, and she's going to be heard on Thursday. And once she's heard and Brett Kavanaugh is able to respond, the people who are voting can decide for themselves who and what they believe. Then we'll vote on Friday. Why this should matter in one one iota to the left is is irrelevant. It's incomprehensible, to be quite frank. Because they have already decided they're voting against him. They decided they were voting against him before his name was called. Then when his name was called, they said we're voting against him. Then they said we're going to spend the next two and a half months figuring out reasons why we are going to vote against him. Now this allegation comes up, and they again say we believe her, and we're going to vote against him. So what difference does it make when you have that vote? Leftists? Democrats? What difference does it make when the vote takes place? You are all going to vote no, and you need someone on the Republicans' uh, side to vote no along with you. It's just that simple. You know doggone well it's not about the votes. It's about delaying the votes so that a vote never happens, and you hope you win the Senate. You hope you win the House in November. That's what this is all about. Uh, Lindsey Graham, Senator from South Carolina, I want to share this with you, has has really, really kind of taken on a new tone in recent weeks. And I don't know if it's the passing of his good friend and fellow, you know, Rhino uh, slash Maverick, uh, a partner in 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 crime, and I use that word figuratively, of course, John McCain. But whatever it is, Lindsey Graham has taken on taken on a new tone. He is showing a lot more guts, a lot more courage, and a lot more uh, fortitude, if you will, in supporting the president of the United States and in supporting the rule of law. This is Lindsey Graham in an impromptu. Uh, press gaggle uh, in uh, in uh, one of the Senate buildings, one of the Senate office buildings. So it's really just kind of informal. It's not at a podium, just a whole bunch of people surrounding him with microphones. And uh, it's outstanding. This is Lindsey Graham at his best, described by at least one Twitter user as being articulate, resolute and knowledgeable of the law and firm is firm in his convictions.
5: Uh, Lindsey Graham supporting Brett Kavanaugh. What are they supposed to do? Go interview everybody in Maryland in the summer of 1982? Were they supposed to go every house in a certain town? There's nothing to be learned here from an FBI investigation. Um, we're talking about appointing somebody to be in charge of the rule of law. I'm going to adopt the rule of law as my standard. If this were a criminal allegation, you would never get out of the batter's box because you can't tell the accused where it happened and when it happened, and there's no corroboration outside the accusation itself. You couldn't sue in civil court for the same reason. You could not even get a warrant. So I will respectfully listen to Dr. Ford, but here's the question for me and others. What is the standard? What is it going to be? Are you really innocent? are guilty based on the accusation. Is there any presumption of innocence left in the confirmation process? We have an accusation, 35 years old, without any verification, and I'm going to look at his entire life, not just this one moment in time in high school that I don't know when it happened and where it happened. And here's what I see from his entire life, a life well lived. And here's my understanding of this area of the law. If you're a sexual predator. If you're a serial rapist, you don't just do it a couple years and quit. The Harvey Weinsteins of the world continue to do it. And when you have a power over a woman, that's when you're most likely to do it. What do I have with Kavanaugh? That you've lived a damn good life. That all the women who worked for you, that you had power over, said he was a good boss. He was respectful. He helped me in my career. So here's what I'm saying. Um, If if, if the accusation is enough, God help us all around here. It's okay to challenge the accuser. It's okay to allow the person being accused to come forward. It's okay to look at this from a system's point of view, not from a political, emotional point of view. And here's what I will do. I will respectfully listen, but if there's nothing new here, I am not going to deny him a promotion to the Supreme Court based on a 35 year old accusation where all the facts that we do know about seem to suggest it didn't happen the way described. So I'm really pretty firm that this is a moment in time for the Senate and the judiciary. If this is enough to deny um, a person a seat on the Supreme Court who's otherwise lived an incredibly good life, then I don't know where this ends.
2: Absolutely brilliantly stated by senator lindsey graham what is the standard if an allegation is all it takes uncorroborated unsubstantiated unverified no evidence if just an allegation is enough to deny a man a seat on the supreme court then god help us all because we are in salem we are facing witch trials if one unsubstantiated, uncorroborated allegation of witchcraft is all it takes to burn a woman at the stake or to drown her, saying that if she's not a witch, she will, uh, she, how did that, how did they usually do that? If you're not a witch, you'll die. If you are a witch, she'll save herself from the, from the, from the, from the drowning. Um, and, oh, look at that. See, she was a witch. She drowned. Uh, it, it's impossible to win senator graham is exactly right it's salem all over again or i'm sorry not uh, not uh, uh, senator graham uh tucker carlson played that last night but there's several others i think maybe senator graham did as well but have made that comparison and it's true if all it takes is an allegation god help us all andy is in uh, middleburg heights on am 1420 the answer hi andy go ahead
6: good morning sir thank you good morning. i've only got two statements about 30 seconds cause i know you're running running short here first thing you got these senators and all that are going to be voting against them. They ought to stop and think a minute. They have a slush fund to cover their butts every time that they get into something where someone makes an accusation. They pay them off. That's one thing. My other statement is, Diane Feinstein, isn't it amazing? Two weeks before this letter came out, she had her Chinese driver, who they said was the spy, Right that, you know she'd been riding around with him in the car for twenty years. You mean in twenty years that that Chinese spy didn't sit there and listen to her conversations in the car as she would being chauffeured around and what happened to him? Why don't they go after Feinstein instead of going after this judge? She's the one that had a spy for twenty years and gave gave away secrets to everybody else and then not the judge. his judge is straight up. she's the one that's crooked, and so is all the people that are backing her. They're trying to hide this Chinese thing over with this letter. That's my opinion. For that, I thank you, sir, and I like your opinion on what I
2: said. Well, Andy, um, my my opinion would be a to agree with you, but b to take it in the other direction. Um, what did that that spy for twenty years over here in listening to Diane Feinstein, which could put national security in jeopardy? But spies oftentimes work two ways. What information might that spy have been presenting to Diane Feinstein? What else did he know? Where, where else did he have ears, or did he have any of his, you know, uh, uh, colleagues in in the in that game, you know, in the uh, surveillance game? Other spies. What did what was he providing to her? Uh, she is a very very dangerous person, as far as I'm concerned. In the insofar as that she has ranking membership on various Senate uh, committees, and she did indeed have a foreign spy working for her, uh, driving for her for twenty years. It's one thing to say, what did the spy over here? And I agree with you on that. And it's another thing to say, what did the spy provide for her? I don't know the answer. But it's worth questioning. As the left would say, it demands an investigation. Got much more. Well, not much more. I've only got one segment left. But I've got more for you coming up on AM 1420 The Answer. 10:54. My goodness gracious! I, you know the the twists t- and turns that this uh, this ridiculous story is taking because of the uh, uh, the the ridiculous demands of the left are are just unbelievable. First of all, uh, again, I just got done talking about how uh, word is now coming from the attorneys that she cannot be guaranteed. That, talking about Dr. Christine Blasey Ford to attend. Uh, It is not a guarantee that she will be there tomorrow for the scheduled hearings. They are going to try to not have her not show, claim that she felt fear. Let me just lay it out for you. When she doesn't show, they'll claim that they couldn't guarantee that she would be treated fairly and safely, and she was afraid. She was afraid of the circumstances, afraid of the people, afraid of not uh, uh, being treated uh, unfairly, and so on and so forth. And you cannot tell a survivor of a sex assault when she feels safe and when she doesn't you have to wait until she feels safe let's reschedule for next week when she's had a chance to compose herself they're going to something in this vein this is what they're going to do okay she's not going to show up and they're going to try to drag this out and the republicans not wanting to look like they are heartless when it comes to the legitimate fear of a potential sex assault survivor are going to say okay we won't have the hearing tomorrow We can try it again next week. They'll just put their tail between their legs and walk away in shame and say, okay. Because that's what they do. I just played you uh, Lindsey Graham, who sounds like he is about done with this. He's fed up with this, and he's ready to go. I know there are others, but only Grassley, only leadership, can make that call for a vote to happen immediately and to go forward with the Kavanaugh questioning so that he can respond to the uh, allegations and to clear his good name, and then to have the vote on Friday. And I don't think he will. That's number one. But now number two, here's the other part of the story. The second accuser, the one that's even flimsier than the first one, Deborah Ramirez, whose story was told in The New Yorker, whose story can be summarized, summarized as, I didn't remember anything. They came to me and said, hey, did you ever have a bad experience with Brett Kavanaugh? Uh, well, I was at a party once, um, maybe, I don't know, I was drunk and literally on the floor because I was so drunk, I don't remember anything. Six days of poking and prodding later, it's like, okay, uh, I'll remember Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah, he shook his junk in my face. Um, but remember, I was drunk and I was on the floor, passed out. I really don't remember much of anything. Can anybody else corroborate this? Nope, not one single person. So flimsier than the other one. And that's perhaps why she said she will not testify. Kavanaugh accuser uh, Deborah Ramirez refuses to testify before Senate committee. According to Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana, a member of the committee, he spoke with Ramirez personally. She made it very clear that she gave her story to the press, which can be found in the New Yorker article that was posted late Sunday night. Quote, our counsel repeatedly tried to reach him, Kennedy said. They finally did reach him and said we are not making a statement talking about her attorney. Uh, he said, if you want our statement, read The New Yorker. Ramirez has a sign outside of her Boulder, Colorado home saying she will not speak to the press. Anyone, any member of the press who would like more information is encouraged to call her lawyer. Senators who are on the fence about confirming Kavanaugh like Susan Collins say they want to hear from Ramirez. The first step in that process would be Ramirez testifying in front of the committee. She refuses to do so. Why do you think that is? The same exact reason Deborah, or, uh, Christine Blase Ford has balked at appearing before this committee for the last 10 days because of two words. The two words that they fear more than any other under oath. Christine Blase Ford is comfortable telling fabricated stories to the press because she can't be held or uh, convicted of perjury for lying to the media. She can be sued for slander. And God willing, the Kavanaugh family will do <clears throat> Excuse me, exactly that. Same thing with Deborah, or Deborah Ramirez. She can tell her lies to the New Yorker, and there's no problem. She tells it to the Senate committee under oath. Now there's perjury. They are scared to death of truth. That's why the words under oath are the most terrifying words that these women who have been coerced into coming forward for political gain, for political benefit, for a political agenda by Senate Democrats, that's why they are hiding. They know full well that the story that they tell, once told to a committee under oath, could come back to hurt them. And that's why they're hiding. It's going to be a very interesting day tomorrow. The hearing is supposed to happen. We'll see if it does. At the same time, President Trump is scheduled to meet with Deputy AG Rod Rosenstein about his future in the Department of Justice, and we're going to talk about both those issues tomorrow morning with Kaylee McEnany. We're going to talk to her at about nine thirty-five tomorrow morning. Make sure you're here for that. Also, make sure you stay where you are right now because Mike Gallagher is coming up next on AM fourteen twenty. The Answer. We'll see you tomorrow.
4: Enjoy
0: the silence.